Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the 1530s, in the same year that Henry VIII declared himself supreme head of the Church of England, in northwestern Germany there occurred a radical 15-month experiment in apocalyptic thinking. Born out of the Reformation, it involved polygamy, proto-communism and a cult-like leader. It ended badly. This is the story of the Anabaptist Kingdom of Münster. Joining me to introduce us to the Anabaptists and to their radical attempt to create heaven on earth is Dr. Cat Hill. Cat is senior lecturer in early modern history at Birkbeck College at the University of London and the author of the prize-winning book Baptism, Brotherhood and Belief in Reformation Germany, Anabaptism and Lutheranism, 1525-1585. to so I thought I'd start by asking her about the connection between Lutheran Protestantism and the Anabaptists. Kat, it is ever a joy to see you. Today we're going to be talking about something that I feel like I need to know an awful lot more about than I actually do. So you're going to be instructing me as much as anyone else. We're going to be thinking about what some have called the Radical Reformation. What's its relationship to Luther, Martin Luther and his Reformation? So the Radical Reformation, they come out of the same conversation that Martin Luther is having with opposition to the Catholic Church, of dissatisfaction with ritual and practice and the social structures of the church. And so they're what we would call the Radical Reformers, the group that I've looked at a lot, the Anabaptists. They're talking to Lutheran theologians, but then they're coming to different conclusions about what that means for reforms. So I think they're coming at many of the same traditions. They're also looking back to medieval reforming practices, but part of this big conversation of how to reform practice and faith. Is there a founder of Anabaptism? Who is it? And what are the central tenets? There isn't really one founder. There's been lots of debate about what this is as a movement. Anabaptism, as it suggests from the name, has got a lot to do with baptism. And the key principle of it is the idea of baptism of adults. The name Anabaptism is actually an insult because it means rebaptism. 
So Anabaptists say, well, actually, we're conducting a true baptism. We don't believe in infant baptism because infants can't make a decision for themselves to undergo a baptism and join the church. So that's kind of the key principle. But there are lots of people who come to these ideas. Um, there's the Swiss Anabaptists who congregate around the Swiss Reformation people like Ulrich Zwingli and coming out of the Reformation there. So a man called Conrad Grebel, another man, Felix Mance. But then there's also reforming groups in the Netherlands, in Strasbourg, in central Germany. So these men are all talking to each other but I wouldn't say there's kind of one founder of the movement. It's more kind of a collection of ideas of people sharing different versions of reform. And some of the key things, if you look up what Anabaptists believe, they reject the Catholic view of the Eucharist, of the Mass, just as Luther does, but they come to a very different view. They say that it's a completely memorialist practice. There's no presence of the body and blood of Christ. They often believe in things like not swearing oaths, not serving in the military, rejecting secular structures of society and government in that way and its interaction with the church. The idea of community of goods, sharing goods, so going back to early church practices, the apostolic church and imitating that. So these reforms, which are very similar to some of the Lutheran or the Zwinglian Swiss reforms, but perhaps go further or take a different path, which is where this idea of radicalism comes from. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's an insult. Of course, Anna Baptist being an insult, Protestants an insult, Huguenots an insult. Pretty much any name you give to anything is an insult. And it really strikes me that if they are saying they don't want to take oaths, if they are not wanting to join the military, in many ways, as well as rejecting infant baptism, there's going to be massive social and emotional consequences of those decisions. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the things that I find most interesting about these groups is that they are rejecting codes of practice which are integral functioning in some of the forms of society in the early modern world. As you say, even the decision not to baptise your child, that has huge implications because emergency baptism, baptising children is considered so important because if you don't baptise, the child goes to limbo in Catholic theology and possibly hell in Protestant theology. So to say as a parent, I'm not going to baptise that infant because I believe that actually they have to make a mature confession of faith. It is a really, really fascinating discussion. And I've looked quite a lot at how it impacts on family structures. And likewise, you say not swearing oaths, these are really important to the functioning of early modern society. Joining a guild, participating in political life, if you don't swear an oath, this idea of not being able to trust someone's word, it has very fundamental implications. That's always one of the sticking points with Anabaptists, you know, that they are separating themselves from society and its structures, even if there can be some accommodation on views on theology, that it's the social implications that are huge. Yeah, I mean, because this is a society in which they can't do credit checks. I mean, the only way they can know if somebody is trustworthy is by their word. Exactly. And they kind of find ways around that later on when some of the, you know, later Anabaptists into the 16th, 17th century, the Mennonites who are kind of a branch of Anabaptism, who are successful merchants and they say, well, we have to find a way around it because we have to trade with them, but they won't swear an oath. So they give up promise and they say, OK, well, a Mennonite promise is as good enough. It's really problematic and leads to often you know, setting up different social structures, Anabaptist communities like the Hutterites, who are another branch of Anabaptism, who go into Eastern Central Europe, setting up their own forms of community and really absenting themselves from some of these social structures. And you see that's a lot of the debate problem that authorities have with them is this inability to check on what's going on and how they're interacting in social structures. This is really interesting because I've always wondered why Lutheran Protestants, as they came to be known, and Catholics hated Anabaptists so much. Do you think it's really this kind of social implications of their beliefs? 
Or is it that actually by saying we're going to go back to first principles, we're going to do what the early church did, we're going to take seriously Jesus when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, or take seriously the acts of the apostles and the living in community and sharing everything. Is it that it is a bit too close to the bone and it makes other people look like hypocrites? What do you think it is? I think it's a bit of both and I think it can vary depending on the situation. I mean, I think for city authorities, it's often this issue of you've kind of got a seditious group. So a group who doesn't accept structures of political and social authority is also potentially a group who's politically seditious. And this is always one of the connections that's made not problematic many times, but do heresy and political sedition go together. And that's something that you see a lot. For someone like Luther, he just feels that the Anabaptists have got it wrong, that they are interpreting scripture in the wrong way. And this unwillingness from Luther to accept alternatives to his vision of reform as well. But I think there is that kind of element of Anabaptists saying, you know, we're the ones who are the true church. We've got it right. This pure church, the elect, we are going back to our apostolic principles. And that's often the debate between reformers. Who's doing the best job? of continuing the legacy of the true church. And because that's often what it's about, recreating a true vision of reform. And if you say we're doing it better and in the radical extreme saying anyone who is outside that is an unbeliever, is someone who is excluded from the vision of the true church, not dissimilar to Calvin, then it is the deep critique of your own vision of reform. And reformers don't like that. The way that Anabaptists are pushing that and saying, you know, you've got this wrong. Your vision of reform is wrong. So I think for theologians, that is the problem for them. So today we're going to talk about one particular moment in Anabaptist history, perhaps the most notorious, this theocratic experiment that the Anabaptists attempt. And its leader is the unlikely figure of a Dutch tailor. Could you please introduce him to us? Yeah, so this is Jan van Leiden or John Leiden in the kind of anglicised version. And he is an unlikely figure to lead this experiment in the Westphalian town of Munster in northwest Germany, where the Anabaptists set up this apocalyptic kingdom and their own system of political authority and they expel believers. And I think the key to kind of understanding Jan van Leiden's position is the unique circumstances that exist in Munster. He's someone who's come through... uh, chain of tradition of reformers. So he's part of a following that associates around Melchior Hoffman, who is an Anabaptist leader who's active around Friesland and Strasbourg. He spends time in Stockholm, knows the Lutheran reformers. And Van Leiden comes out of this tradition of Reformation thought, which has got a deeply apocalyptic strain to it. Hoffman thinks the end of the world is coming in 1533. And so Van Leiden takes this theology and he's able to be active in Munster, where the Reformation has taken a particular course, partly because of the nature of Munster. And Munster is ruled by a prince bishop, so a Catholic prince bishop. The guilds, though, are there are very powerful as part of the Hanseatic League. And so you have this kind of opposition between perhaps the waning power of the Catholic prince bishop, powerful guilds, and then a strong reforming tradition that comes in. There's a reformer Bernard Rothman and their association with the political elite, the mayor there. And they're able through this and through the first reformer who kind of starts the movement, Jan Matisse, to secure Anabaptist elections, essentially, into the council. And Rothman is protected by the council. And Matisse dies fairly on in this kind of Anabaptist takeover. And then Jan van Leiden steps into his shoes. And at this point, because of support in some of the guilds, the merchant classes and the political elite in Munster, they're able to expel those who won't accept rebaptism. Others flee. And then they start trying to recruit 
people into this kingdom. Jan van Leiden is clearly quite a canny character. He's able to exploit that situation. But this circle of particular vision of reform combined with the situation that's going on in Munster and to set up this unique experiment, restore Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem on earth as the apocalypse supposedly comes. Okay, so the method of taking control is kind of gradual at first. It's getting people elected who are in the right position. And then when they've got enough in positions of power, they start to expel unbelievers, those who don't go along with their point of view. What are their intentions? What are they hoping to do in Munster? So to set up essentially a kingdom which is a kingdom of the true elect church, if you believe that the end of the world genuinely is coming and Hoffman sets a date, it passes, it's 1533, but these dates are taken on and you could have extended. If you believe that those who are faithless are going to be punished and those who are of the true faith are going to be saved and you need to set up a church to represent that with the coming of Christ, then this is an experiment in doing that. And anyone who is faithless will be punished. And the whole city is set up along the lines of that this is part of this biblical prophecy of the restored Jerusalem, which appears in the book of Revelations, the heavenly Jerusalem. And therefore, that you have to have kind of a pure church. And so it's a political thing as well, because it's taking over an actual city. But it's this belief of, of setting up a community, which is a pure community. I mean, our definition or what we might think of as pure might be kind of slightly different as to what actually happens in Munster. And this is some of the kind of the debate over this, but this idea of a particular vision of reform and getting rid of anyone. I mean, some people choose to flee, of course, because they're afraid, you know, if you don't subscribe to these views, but, but this is a way of preparing for the end days. I always find it fascinating people who believe they're living in the end days and they have a date and then the date passes and yet it doesn't challenge their worldview at all. That always... Seems a little problematic. And also it's interesting that they think that the heavenly city of Jerusalem is something that can physically happen on earth. I mean, by definition, I would have thought (laughs) that wouldn't be thought to be the case. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I find really interesting about some of these groups, these practices, is the way in which they kind of want to make physical, make flesh, make material spiritual, visionary, prophetic ideas. The Munster Kingdom is perhaps the most famous example of that, as you say, to kind of set up a restored, a heavenly Jerusalem. But it's by no means the only example of trying to make this spiritual vision an apocalyptic vision the case. I mean, someone like Thomas Munster, for example, designates cities as well to be the city which will be Zion, which will be the heavenly Jerusalem. There are other groups, other Anabaptist groups that take on kind of sexual or ritual practices, which are again about making visible, making fleshly material the spiritual union with Christ, with apocalyptic ideas. So it's this particular moment in time, perhaps, in the early decades of the Reformation, this sense of potential of change, but also that that's change which is associated with the end of the world. And I think this does lead to these really different ways of trying to make that reform happen and setting up what is a prophetic vision into something earthly. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big 
topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. So we're in 1534. They've got their feet under the table. What do they do once they set up this kingdom? So it's a process of trying to consolidate the position of Jan Matisse, who's the first leader. He's killed on a mission to go out and recruit people to the kingdom of Munster and then Jan van Leiden. And they set up their own form of government. They actually have support of uh, Nipa Dolling, who was the mayor, a key political figure. And they set up a council of 12 elders, again, with scriptural references going on there, the 12 tribes of Israel, the kind of Old Testament justice. And they enforce a kind of a system of reform, of practices to institute what they think looks like a vision of the true church. That includes the community of goods, this idea of pooling your resources, saying that the apostolic practice of the church was to share, not just wealth, but food should be centrally controlled and then share that. They also try and recruit people. So, you know, the idea of kind of fulfilling the vision of the true church, get all the true followers. So they send out missions, emissaries to areas around. And then perhaps the most famous thing that they do, which is the thing which has given Munster such an infamous reputation, is the enforcement of polygamy. That's partly a a scriptural idea to replicate Old Testament practice so that Jan van Leiden himself has 16 wives and this idea of of the elders and this form of of Old Testament discipline and of morality. And it's also partly a practical thing because many people do flee. And the reality is that in Munster, it's the women often who can't flee. Their husbands may do or the young men may do. So there's much higher female population left in Munster than there is a male population. So it's partly a kind of way of managing the population. And we get very detailed and very critical account from the only eyewitness or the only 
account that we have from someone who was there, which is Henry Gresbeck, who gives this account of a young girls being forced into marriages. And, you know, we have to take his account with a pinch of salt, but this is something which Munster has become infamous for. Yes, and I'm sure I've read that young girls were made to marry. Is that something that we only get from him? Is it a bit doubtful whether that's true? <laughs> it is problematic knowing exactly what happened because we don't have first-hand sources aside from this account. Gresbeck himself had been in the city, tries to flee, ends up captured by the besieging forces of the bishop who are around and writes this account to explain his own role. So, you know, he's not going to portray what's going on in a positive light. But I think the reality is as well from some of the cases that we see later about property that there were marriages as well of very young girls and women. I mean, you've given a very good reasoning for going ahead with this in terms of practical terms and maybe a little bit Old Testament. But I mean, 16 wives, I mean, that's a lot of wives. I can't think of any contemporary examples where that's being practised. It must have been such a sort of break from social norms. It must seem so radical in the 1530s. You know, there's many ways you can think about what's going on with the morality of what's happening here. But it is a uniquely shocking and very odd way of ordering society to 16th century norms. And certainly you can see why, therefore, in the accounts that come afterwards, it's something which is really establishes this. However true that is, establishes this reputation of Munster as this event of abnormality, of something which is really radical, which is very, very shocking. Counter to it being completely abnormal, I think, is the idea that one argument that says that this is about lust. This is about, you know, just men satisfying their needs through polygamy and that could be one way of seeing it I think the other way of seeing it is this is about an extreme version of patriarchal control of hierarchical control and of elite control and although Munster has been seen as an experiment perhaps in equality and kind of sharing goods actually what it does is it sets up a very different form of male and actually elite authority and it's about disciplining it's about controlling sexuality within these forms so it might be about sexual relations between Leiden and his 16 wives but it Certainly what it is about is control. And I think there you can see some of the parallels with wider 16th century society, but also what other groups are doing in terms of sexual practices, which look very abnormal, but actually are about controlling sexuality rather than, you know, lust in that kind of simple way. Yes, I think it would be a 21st century or perhaps 20th century idea to say it's the men's lust. We're actually a 16th century way of it is seeing it's women who are the lustful ones. So actually, we're helping them out. We're helping them control and trammel their desires into an acceptable situation. Of course, it also makes it look like a blueprint for many of the sort of millenarian sects we got in the late 20th century. It's a really interesting argument about how many parallels can we draw between these types of movements which look similar. I mean, this idea of the pursuit of the millennium, the famous book by Norman Cohen, which traces these parallels and says, you know, this way of thinking, this apocalyptic thinking lends itself to utopian ideals where people kind of get caught in this vision where they can be taken advantage of. And there have been many critiques of that as well. I mean, there's a lot of scholarship recently saying all this is doing is replicating 16th century polemic against the Anabaptists. But I think what is important, what scholars have recognised is important in that parallels the power of like a prophetic leader or if to use 20th, 21st century terminology, like a cult leader, someone who clearly is in a position to use authority does have charisma, has power, has a group around him and the way in which that operates in terms of kind of certain structures and the types of things that allows. That's not to say that every millenarian experiment does that or that there's necessarily a connection between the two. 
But I think you can see those parallels, which are, again, about control. They're about hierarchies. They're about setting up a vision of society where you have a high degree of control of people's behaviour. And I think that is interesting. It's one thing, you know, often with students to get to think about looking at early modern preaching is to try and understand what it must have been like to be at a sermon by a really charismatic early modern preacher. Someone like Thomas Munzer, who obviously could speak. And you look at his sermons that he writes, I mean, he's earlier, this is Peasants' War you're talking about. And then, he, you know, it's not a direct parallel, but getting them to think about that in terms of modern evangelical preaching and understanding that kind of role of charisma, I think, is really helpful. Or even somebody like Lady Gaga or, you know, some pop star, somebody who has extraordinary charisma and appeal. So you mentioned in passing that Munster is besieged. Tell us about the reaction to this kingdom and who is opposing them. So pretty quickly, obviously, the Prince Bishop, Franz von Waldeck, is saying, well, this is my territory. This is the city at the centre of my territory. He's not actually in the city. Not only is it a political threat, but it's a form of heresy. This is a Catholic Prince Bishopric, but it's not just Catholic opposition and Protestants and Catholics dislike Anabaptists. And this extreme form of Anabaptism in their eyes, which is a threat to social order, what if other cities decide to set up as New Jerusalems and kick everyone out and enforce these kind of moral codes? So there's the armies of the Prince Bishop and he's able to recruit help from other political elites. And so fairly early on, actually, the city is besieged. So as soon as this regime takes hold, associated armies of the Prince Bishop surround the city so that what you have actually with the Kingdom of Munster is a very long siege situation I mean it's a really interesting dynamic as well in the city because they know they're under attack the whole time it's not easy to get out communication is difficult getting supplies in is difficult and this is unacceptable to both Catholic and Protestant officials and that the reaction condemning across the Holy Roman Empire that ultimately obviously does end in the fall of the kingdom that the bishops armies are able to penetrate the walls. So that must have been extraordinarily difficult for those within. I'm thinking of comparisons like the siege of Sancerre in France where people starve because of the siege. I mean are the inhabitants literally starving? This is one of the other things that comes out of Gresbeck's account, the contemporary accounts, and other kind of later hostile accounts as well, that people are going hungry. And despite these efforts, supposedly to kind of share things, there's also deep criticism of Jan van Leiden at the centre and his court, because he essentially ends up setting himself up as a king. He is declared the king of Munster and of this new Jerusalem. He has, you know, the trappings of a king and they have food, but the ordinary people don't and people start to try and flee and then there are accounts of people eating animals there are accounts of eating children who die again we don't know whether these are actually verifiable but that there's certainly rumors that are circulating around and this leads of course to opposition to disruption within the kingdom itself it's not that Jan van Leiden is universally loved and everyone is very happy with the situation there's opposition to him as well and disruption and he performs executions himself that's astonishing in German culture in the 16th century I mean it's a really dishonorable thing to do yeah exactly so there's this idea of a very different form of political authority and again this could be Gresbeck and later accounts dishonoring him but certainly he's there and it's this control this getting rid of opposition Really, by the late 1534, the city falls in 1535, you can tell that the cracks are clearly showing in this regime. And it's really problematic for people living there who don't share in the court of Jan van Leiden. 
It's also striking that if Gresbeck's account is to be trusted, that actually we've moved on from a system of sharing all goods and sharing food to, you know, it's animal farm. It's become the hierarchy again. Yeah, this is not really an attempt at a community of goods. I mean, it is another form of political elite at the centre and that you have, yes, opposition to the kind of existing elite, the bishop, which is part of what's going on in the Reformation as well. And, you know, some of the early reforming movements in Munster come out of the legacy of the Peasants' War and that kind of moment in the early Reformation of the common man. But that's not really what Munster looks like. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, you can't really enforce that type of regime without control. This idea of polygamy is pretty shocking. You need control. You have to know what your form of discipline looks like. It's not a regime of equality. It's one of hierarchy in a different form. So how does the siege come to an end? Gresbeck, who's at the centre of this, because as I say, he is fleeing, is caught or thinks he can't make it through enemy lines on the way out. And then says, OK, well, kind of hand myself over and make for the best of it. And then gives the armies of the Prince Bishop surrounding a way into the city and then kind of opening the gate. Once you're inside the city, by that point, there's not really much Jan van Leiden can do. People have been leaving. He's actually been sending people outside the city walls, especially some of the older women and weaker people. So it's reduced to this smaller core and they're really no match once they're able to breach the city walls. And then this ends in this, this kind of the three ringleaders of which obviously Jan van Leiden is one and Nipper Dolling, the mayor. The three ringleaders are executed and their bodies are displayed around the region and then they're hung up in cages on the church in Munster and the cages are still there so you can go and see the cages in Munster as this sign to anyone who kind of attempts this type of rebellion that they will be dealt with in this way. In the same way that with the Peasants' War it's a pretty quick and brutal reprisal with pardons for people within the city, the ordinary people, but the ringleaders are really made an example of What do you make of the fact that the iron cages are still hanging on that church tower? Yeah, it's a really kind of problematic part of this legacy of, I mean, there's this fascination with death and torture and rebellion, which obviously is popular. It sells. They are pretty grisly and quite unpleasant because it's such an infamous account. It's something which has sparked so much popular imagination. I mean, there's plays and literature and all sorts of things that have come of the accounts of Munster. It's this thing which has become maybe the tourist attraction of Munster. Yes, I think it's called thanotourism, this kind of dark tourism where you go around death sites. But it is certainly true. I remember when I first started writing about the 16th century and it was before ISIS started beheading people, basically. And so people would joke about beheadings. And then when it was suddenly in the news you know, the beheading of Anne Boleyn or whatever, suddenly had a very different resonance. And I do think there's this way that through time, centuries passed, and so you can sort of think about torture in almost a playful way, you know, the way people put their heads in stocks and laugh, that sort of thing, whereas actually it's all really quite horrid. Exactly. The ISIS connection is really interesting because there have been a couple of pieces written about saying, oh, well, Munster was like an ISIS experiment in itself, a radical experiment and was something where, you know, this is this extreme form of faith-based authority, brooking no opposition. So it's really interesting that the way in which that connection has been made about saying this is where extreme faith can lead. Do you think that's a fair comparison? 
I don't think it's a fair comparison because it ignores any kind of historical context of ISIS and Munster. Again, I think it's an easy comparison to make about where extremism can lead, but I think that it's problematic to say that this is radical faith and this is where this leads. It always leads to kind of violence and dissent and heresy in this way. So I think it's interesting to look at what types of structures allow for types of extreme political solutions or different kind of social solutions, but I think easy comparisons are always slightly um, disingenuous in that way. Yeah, I see. It's making a political religious point that says, get too deep in faith and this will happen. Yeah, exactly. But we can trace to more recent times some confessions that kind of have the Anabaptists among their sort of spiritual lineage, can't we? Who do we look at for that? When people ask me what I'm working on, I'm like, you know, the Amish in America and the Mennonites, because people know who the Amish are with the buggies and traditional dress. These groups go back to the Anabaptists. So there's the kind of the three modern traditions, Mennonites, Amish and Hutterites. The Mennonites are the most numerically strong group today, although a lot of people know Amish groups. And they all trace their roots back to 16th century Anabaptism. Hutterites, they're named after to Jakob Hutter, the Amish back to Amman, and then Menno Simons is the founder of the Mennonites. And the Mennonites, I think, are particularly interesting in this discussion because Menno Simons is a, an Anabaptist leader who is in Friesland in the Netherlands, the same region that Melchior Hoffman, who is the preacher, he's not in Munster, but inspires some of these apocalyptic theologies. He's in the same type of area, and Menno Simons himself rejects the violence of Munster and is associated with what we would now see as part of the Anabaptist tradition, which is that they are peace churches. They are churches who emphasise not fighting. You know, they won't fight in the military, say that you shouldn't use violence to enforce your views, and that therefore in contemporary Anabaptist groups, accounts of themselves, a problematic narrative They'd say, you know, Munster is an aberration. This isn't what our tradition is. Our tradition is the peaceful tradition. You know, it's saying that we reject violence. And if there is violence done to us, we don't do it back. So this is still a live part of the debate about the legacy and what 16th century ideas mean for contemporary descendants of these ideas. And of course, most of those groups, I would have thought, are biggest in America. So it must have been that these were ideas that were exported there in the 17th century. Would you just do a quick little <laughs> potted history from 1534 onwards for us? Yeah, the Mennonites develop from the mid-16th century onwards. They're in the Netherlands and they actually migrate mostly to modern-day Poland, to Prussia in the 17th century, although there's still a strong Mennonite presence in the Netherlands. And they always tend to move because they feel that they can't practice their faith in the way that they want to. Mennonites do go over in the form of the groups that were kind of the first Mennonite settlers and then become the Amish. That's kind of a branch of Mennonites, the Amish, in the 17th century, along with the early first Protestant settlers to Germantown, along with the you know, Quakers and Pilgrim Fathers. But actually the biggest migrations don't happen until the 19th century, because from Poland, Mennonites go to Russia, what's now modern-day Ukraine, but the Southern Russian Empire at the time. And then in the 19th century, that's when you get big waves of Mennonite migration across to Canada and to America. Then from there, I mean, most people would associate those groups with North America and Canada in particular. But the fastest growing communities, as it is for Christianity in general, is the global south. So 
churches in Africa, Korea, India, that's as well where Mennonite communities are growing. And there's also kind of old order, what we'd call very traditional churches in Paraguay, Mexico, Belize. Um, so all these kind of places around the world. So from that kind of origin of this corner of the Northwest Holy Roman Empire, they've gone a very long way indeed. And do they still reject infant baptism? They do. It's debatable what age being an adult is. I mean, it varies from church to church, but yeah, it can be kind of early teens. It can be a bit later, but yes, they don't baptize infants. And generally speaking, still reject core principles. When I was in the archives in Kansas, for example, Mennonite archives, one of the fellow visitors came up to me and asked if I would sign his petition. They were asking the American government if the inland revenue portion of their tax that got put towards American military efforts could be taken off because they didn't believe in contributing to the American military services. So there's a huge variety in Mennonite beliefs to this day, but there's these kind of long legacies of what we see in the 16th century. Well, that was a perfect, in a nutshell, guide to not only what happened at Munster, but to the long legacy that has left. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. It's totally been an education. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.